If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, we are bringing back one of our most popular guests, Abra Annis, to share her experiences and thoughts about strong donor cultivation and stewardship. Before I move into the intro, however, I want to share with you that we are launching two different group coaching opportunities. One group will be for new executive directors who are transitioning into the role, and this will be for those first-time EDs as well as seasoned EDs who've been in the role before, and it will be designed to help you get a strong start as your new organization staff leader. The group will meet regularly, and we've designed a specialized curriculum to meet your onboarding and self-care needs. We're also launching a coaching group for organizations that are experiencing tough times. That might be related to COVID-19 recession, an intransigent board, or significant staffing issues. In this group, we'll provide the support, coaching, and mentoring necessary to build success and thrive, both professionally and organizationally. If you're interested in either of these groups, please visit the coaching page at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Nonprofits, it is no secret, thrive on strong and healthy relationships with their clients, volunteers, staff, partner organizations, and of course, donors. Today, we are going to discuss the all-important relationship between nonprofits and donors, and specifically, what happens when that relationship starts to break down and not go as planned. We are joined today by Aubrey Annis, a close and dear friend of the podcast. And here, by the way, is how I know she's a friend. She will occasionally reach out to me with the uncomfortable truth. She might say, you know, Dolph, the sound quality of your guest this week wasn't great. Or she might say, you should have posted this episode on YouTube as well. And you know, a friend is someone who doesn't just celebrate your successes, but will tell you the truth when something could be better. Abra describes herself as a philanthropy nut. She has worked in the nonprofit fundraising sector for a decade, 
before founding Generosity Auctions, which has become San Francisco's go-to fundraising auctioneer company. In her spare time, Abra serves on numerous local nonprofit committees and boards, and she also has regular and actively donated to organizations herself. So Abra knows the donation game from the perspective of both the nonprofit and the donor. Unfortunately, this also means that Abra is intimately familiar with the less than perfect relationships, cultivation, and stewardship between a nonprofit and a donor. And she has graciously agreed to help us learn from her experience. So please join me in welcoming Abra to the podcast. Hey, Abra, it has been far too long since you've been on the podcast. I know, but it's so great to be back. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here and hope everything's going well with you and your family during this COVID time. So crazy. All things considered, I think we can probably all say that right now. It's like we're just all hoping for the best. But I know that you've had some big life changes since you've been on the podcast. So share with our listeners what's been going on. Uh, A ton has been going on. My home, not the home actually, but our entire property burned down in the Tubbs fire of 2017. We lived up in Sonoma County in Santa Rosa. We moved to a different suburb outside of San Francisco. I'm now closer to the city. And now I have three children. And actually, I'm expecting another one in January. So my life is really crazy. So, but it's been fun. Very fun. Oh my gosh. So what's it like? Three, one on the way. Like, are you prepping? What are you doing? You know, I am really, really enjoying spending this time with my children. I feel for a very long time, I just wanted to be a strong working woman first and then a mom second. And this COVID experience and just kind of this slowdown in society has really allowed me to embrace my inner Laura Ingalls Wilder. Like we're like baking and we're being outside and we're having all these family meals. Like I'm really, you know, I feel like it's hard in this society to be a woman, to be like a, you're either a gung-ho mom or a gung-ho worker, working woman who happens to have children. And I feel like this time has let me embrace that other side, which I never embraced. And it's been actually very fun. So it's been great. That's so awesome. And I think for a lot of folks, especially people who've not, you know, had loved ones who've gotten who've gotten COVID, this has sort of been an opportunity to explore what life might look like when you're not doing what you've always done. I know for me, you know, I've traditionally flown like for the last several years, 120 to 140,000 miles a year. And it's been three months since I've been on a plane. And I actually thought when I first got grounded that I was going to really miss it. And I'm surprised I don't. I don't miss the lounge. I don't miss the plane. I don't miss the airport. So I hear you. Like, this is kind of an opportunity for us to really rediscover some things that maybe we've not discovered well. Agreed. Very much. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Well, so you came on today because we're going to talk a little bit about your donor journey. So where would you like to start? I think we should start at the very beginning. And I'm tempted to break into a little sound of music quote there, but I won't. I remember very clearly growing up the first moment I realized that there was inequality and injustice and hardship in the world that did not apply to me. And I'm just going to tell this quick story. There's a I grew up in Chicago and there's a beautiful public zoo in Chicago called the Lincoln Park Zoo. And they have a 
farm in the zoo and it's on the way north end of the park. And I was there with my mom and it was Chicago and it was freezing cold. And we went into the bathroom and there was somebody listening to the radio in the other stall. And I asked my mom, we were in the stall together, why someone would listen to the radio in the bathroom. And my mom said, that's their home. And it literally blew my mind that somebody was living in this bathroom stall to escape the snow and the cold. And that kind of was my first experience. My first donor experience, I have two. When I was about 10 years old, one, I adopted a manatee named Boomer, which I didn't really know was philanthropy. I thought it was more like you got a pet that was in the wild. And the second was there's this amazing facility outside of Chicago called Lamb's Farm that is a working breathing community where young adults and adults who live with Down syndrome and other physical and mental different abilities live and work. And so they work in the gift shop or they feed the animals and they also live there independently in homes. And we would go there all the time because it was kind of like something to do. You go to this farm. And I remember reading they had, you could donate to Lamb's Farm, it's called. And so for my 10th birthday, I took all my birthday money. It was $20. And I donated it to Lamb's Farm. But I remember my parents saying like, wow, $20 is a lot of money. It was all my birthday money at the time. And they said, are you sure you want to donate all of this? Like you won't be able to keep any. And I said, yes, I want to donate all of it. And it, I think I was a donor there for maybe 10 years. I kept my $20 donation going. And it really just started this, this love and this journey for giving back. And I, I have to admit, I have a very soft spot for social service. That's my, that is my heart. I just have to reflect that I love your take on your very first foray into philanthropy where you say, I didn't even think of it as philanthropy. It just felt like I had a pet in the wild. And that's almost ideal philanthropy where you don't even feel like you're giving. You just feel like you're doing something great. Yeah. And I, what I remember so clearly about both my experience with Lamb's Farm and Adopt a Manatee, this was also back in the 80s and early 90s, is I would get mail. My kids don't get mail now, but I got mail and it would be amazing. And they sent these letters written from the manatee's point of view. And I thought Boomer was literally writing me from some pond in Florida, ocean pond, inlet, whatever you want to call it. I know they're saltwater animals. They don't live in ponds, but whatever. And Lamb's Farm also sent these beautiful letters filled with pictures and stories. And I remember reading these and being like, wow, look what I did. I support this place. And that was my first experience, now thinking back on it, with donor cultivation. It kept me connected. It kept me engaged. And then year after year, when it was time to donate, I'd be like, all right, here's my $20. And I would mail it in and feel so good about it. Again, like that's the way philanthropy is supposed to work. You're supposed to feel good when you donate. Yes, you're supposed to feel good and you're supposed to know what's going on. You know, for me, I work with a lot of nonprofit organizations like you do. My three big things that I want from an organization personally as a donor, I want personalization, I want insight. Insight is so big. I want to know what's going on. What are you doing with, even with my $20? What are you doing? And I want acknowledgement. And those simple little letters gave me those. They gave me acknowledgement and they gave me insight into what was going on, even through a simple mailer. I got it once a month. It was the best thing ever happened to me. And so as a donor today, like how are you looking for that personalization inside and acknowledgement? This is one of my favorite topics and we could go so deep on this, but 
you know, back when I was getting those original letters from Boomer, my manatee, and from Lamb's Farm, it was a lot of work to type it up on a word processor, send it to a printer, and get it to my house, right? Like somebody probably put on every label. Today, with technology, the ability to personalize our acknowledgement letters or our stewardship letters or even welcome to the organization if you become a member like the zoo, the ability to segment our donors and personalize is, is incredibly simple and incredibly easy to do. And it kills me when organizations send me such impersonal, uncreative letters, and then I get the same one for five years in a row. That's what drives me nuts. So what I look for is people who take, they don't need to take copious notes, but put me in a category. I'm 38. Put me in a category for under 40. So I'm somebody who could receive text messages and likes receiving text messages. Put me in a category with people who you know, started giving during this decade. So I don't get the messages from people who've been giving 50 years. I've been giving 50 years. I want, if you're going to customize, let's really niche down. Have like 10 different acknowledgement levels. I give because a boomer. If you're the Manatee Association, let's have a don't boomer donor acknowledgement letter so I don't just get the generic the Manatee Association of Southern Florida appreciates your gift. Thank you so much for all you do. One of the organizations that I think we're going to talk about later that I was giving, you know, $18,000 a year to, it finally occurred to me I had never gotten a handwritten note. I had never gotten a personalized acknowledgement letter that focused on me and my priorities as a donor. And I keep all my acknowledgement letters. And I literally had 10 identical letters which also showed me that the nonprofit wasn't taking the time to update their letter yearly to say anything new about what they were doing or exciting. And it had zero photos. Zero. It was so boring to read. Oh, my gosh. I just have to say, I cannot imagine giving at that level and getting 10 of the exact same donation letters. I just cannot imagine that. 10 of them. Yes. And it finally occurred to me, like, this organization doesn't care enough about themselves to write a new letter every year. It could take you a day, maybe. And they don't care to segment me. Like I give because I'm very focused on X and here's why I give and when I give. I'm a little old fashioned in the way I give. Most millennials, which I do qualify for, give their monthly givers. I'm not a monthly giver. I like to give annually once. That's the way I like to give. But I want, I, I want the organization to take the time to acknowledge it in a meaningful way. So I feel like I know you pretty well, even though we've never met in person. We live in this miraculous time. We're on different coasts, but I feel like I know you pretty well. So I feel like you probably reached out to them to give them some feedback. Uh, you're correct. <laughs> and I did. So this is also a very, I don't want to say it's a hard conversation to have, but it was a very hurtful experience because you don't give you know, five-figure gifts for organizations that you just kind of like. You give five-figure gifts to organizations that you believe in and that you know and that you love and you trust and you feel passionate about the work. And that's how I felt about this organization. And I had been involved for a very, very long time, seven, eight, nine years. And my gift had, I didn't start off giving $18,000. So I did reach out numerous times and I was, it started off, this is kind of a lengthy story. I don't know how deep we want to get. This organization used to be a 
donor to donor organization where one member of the community would ask another member of the community for a gift. So you would have a relationship with somebody who would either meet you for coffee or lunch or whatever you wanted to do to solicit your gift. Over the years, like many organizations, they felt they were streamlining and moved to the donor relationship manager concept where there was some staff member who then took over the giving. So when I called, my initial call was, hey, I don't even know who my donor relationship manager is. I haven't spoken to them in three years. I've been giving perpetually and I keep getting these acknowledgement letters. Who is my donor relationship manager? And I got a call back saying, well, your donor relationship manager was this person, but actually now we're switching you, which I assume, and I'm just guessing, meant that somebody knew that they had like messed up and were embarrassed to have a conversation with me. So they transferred me to somebody else. I'm assuming that's what happened. Okay. So I get this new person and I have this conversation with them. I tell them what I need and what I want and what I'm expecting. And I'm very open and I don't really get mad a lot and nothing really hurts my feelings. So I had this conversation. Then we had a lovely lunch and then I hear nothing. And so I keep giving this feedback and then I keep reading articles about what this organization is doing. And I call up and I say, is this true? Can we have a conversation about this? I want to know. And it just kind of got passed around and nothing happened. So yes, I gave feedback and I did say like, I would like to have a conversation with you once a year to find out what the funding priorities are this year or what my money is being used for or how are we allocating dollars to programs, et cetera, et cetera. And even though that was expressed, I I felt very clearly it either wasn't absorbed or it, the organization didn't feel like it mattered. And so it sounds like you also then reached out to the relationship manager and then, but you said you got passed around. So what did that look like? It was extremely frustrating. You know, I I have worked in nonprofits for many, many years. And my very first nonprofit I worked for was in the Midwest. And I had been trained kind of in the old school philanthropy method that you try to touch base with your donors at least once a quarter, whether it's a phone call or an email or just a hi, how are you? Even if it's like 10 minutes and or you just leave a voice message, You cannot just call people once a year and ask for the lunch and then expect them to just give you money. Some people do work like that, but most of them don't. They want to be involved and they want to feel cared about. So that's how I had been trained as a staff member. And when I became a donor, especially at this, you know, $10,000 and up level, I expected, oh, I can't wait for these meetings. I can't wait to be treated like a major donor, which, you know, maybe that isn't how it works at this organization, but I assume it does. And it didn't happen. So when I called, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be the person that was like, "I'm not getting enough attention as a donor." But I did feel like, "Hey, I am giving at a decent level. I should be getting some kind of attention." Not because I want people to pat me on the back, but because I care and I really want to know. I want to know what's going on, and I want to be involved. So I would be passed around to people on the board or on committees, or I would be passed around, this was a large organization, to the leadership development team, anybody who they thought could have this conversation with me. And what I really needed was somebody to just sit down and listen to me and say, you want to hear what's going on? 
I know what's going on. Let me tell you. Let me answer any questions that you have. And oh, by the way, if you have any more questions, please feel free to ask them to me. And by the way, let's make this an every six month meeting, or we could even do it on the phone call. But what was making me frustrated and exasperated and tired was I felt I was doing all the work that the organization was supposed to do. I felt like I was cultivating myself and being like, please cultivate me, please cultivate me. And, and they didn't want to. Um, and, and after a while, my husband and I, who's also very involved in philanthropy, he was like, they either don't like you or they don't care. But he's like, nothing good is happening here. And so that's when I came to the realization that not all organizations do cultivation like this. And now I'm involved with many different organizations that do incredible donor cultivation. And it is so refreshing. And so I know everyone is wondering, did you stay as a donor? Great question. I was part of a big cohort of people under 40 who uh, was part of this national committee. And part of the requirements, along with being under 40 to join this national committee, was you had to commit to giving a minimum of $5,000 per year for six years. So for the first four years, I gave it at above the $5,000 level because I was asked as part of this national committee. My last two years on that committee, I had a kid, I had a move, all this stuff came off. I wasn't able to be as active in that committee. And so I didn't give as part of that, that committee. And I said to myself and my husband, I'm going to give this money, but they have to ask for it. I'm done with just me just sending in the checks and not being cultivated and not being acknowledged the way I want to. And I don't have any insights. So they had the whole year and the whole year went by. Can I guess? And I didn't. Oh, I'm, I was, was going to guess wrong. I was going to say that the whole year went by and there were just a couple days left in the year. And then you got a call essentially saying, hi, they're not going to say it this way. Hi, you're a lie button. You gave last year, but unfortunately not this year. Will you please give? I wish that would have happened. That would have been better than what did happen. <laughs> and I still would have given. I still would have given. I know that the organization is so much bigger than the people who work there that are sometimes the, the failures of the day-to-day -day operations. And I know that by not giving the, a gift, you often penalize the wrong people. Like you think you're penalizing, oh, I'm going to get back at that person who's so mean at me at that lunch, whatever. But actually you're penalizing the beneficiaries. So I said, um, I'll give the gift, but they have to ask for it. But I want it to be real. I don't want it to be end of the campaign year. I want it to be a meaningful ask, like in person or a real conversation from, from a, the right person. Well, I didn't get any call that year, not even a check-in call, nothing. And the end of the campaign year came, their end of the campaign year, I think is June 30th, nothing. Then the next year went by and I just can't believe they're not like sitting around looking at their donor database being like, oh, Abra gave in August every year for eight years and her gift always went like this. And then one year it, it, she didn't give, like, let's have a conversation about that. So the second year that I was, I would have given again no phone calls. And after that second year, I called the organization and I said, what's up? You guys don't want my money anymore. You guys are losing donors. It's all over like the paper that your donor numbers are going down. Like, is my money bad money? And they're like, oh, well, uh, well, they like had no answer. And so I was like, this is just not how you fundraise. They're like, well, let us know if you want to restart a relationship. I'm like, this is, that's not what you say to a donor. You decide if you want a relationship with me and then you work on it. It's kind of like, 
you know, dating. I really love Laura Ingalls Wilder. I really love Little House on the Prairie. It's like being courted by Almanzo. Laura didn't pick Almanzo. Almanzo was like, I pick you. And then he drove her to church and drove her to singing lessons. I That's how I want donors to, if I express interest, I want you to court me and I'll be responsive, but I, I need to be courted. Well, and I have to say, part of what baffles me so much, Abra, is you know, this organization had moved from a donor to donor, a peer to peer model to a staffed model. So presumably before they made that move, they could have said, oh, we're really sorry. Our volunteer didn't follow up. We're going to correct this. But in this, but at this point, like it's someone's job and, you know, they've got a limited number of people. It might be a large number, but they have a limited number of people they are responsible for knowing about and responsible for following up with. Correct. Well, and it's also interesting. I was talking to my husband, his name is Jordan. And we were talking last night how even during when the coronavirus hit, if I was running that organization, I would have called every donor we ever had, large or small, lapsed or skipped, just to check in on them. And how good that would have felt to me. And by the way, I might have started giving again. And I think what's so interesting about the way I feel, and I can only speak about this from my personal donor experience is that even though I am frustrated by what the organization has done and how it is run, I am still as passionate and caring about the work. And I would give again today if treated properly as a donor. And that's just a big misconception. People think, oh, they're mad. They put like a do not touch this donor button on them in the database or whatever that label is or do not call. And I think that's a mistake. I think if you call just to ask for money, sure, don't call them. But if you want to call to reinvigorate the relationship and reinvigorate the passion, that that call is never a bad call. And I would welcome that call with open arms and, a, and like 45 minutes of time. I would be happy to take that call at any time. So I got to tell you a true story. When I started as the executive director of the community center in Philly, there was a donor who had a high capacity, could make if the person wanted to, easily make six-figure gifts every single year. But the organization had alienated him when he was like a $10,000 a year donor, and he had not given in 18 months. And so, you know, I'm coming in as the ED, and I know part of my job is I need to reach out to all the donors and all the lapsed donors. So I called this person up, and, and I can still picture it. Like, it's on the East Coast. I'm on regional rail. And, you know, I'm, I'm coming back from a meeting, and I'm just trying to get my calls in. So I called this person. I tell the person who I am. And he literally, I can hear on the other end of the phone, he's angry and he's almost screaming at me. And he essentially says, I know what this is about. All you want is money. And he hangs up on me. And then I call him back. I won't say his name, but I'm like, oh, so-and-so, I, I somehow we must have gotten disconnected. And can we continue <laughs> this conversation? And then essentially, you know, I spent the next several months building a relationship with this person. You know, and, and I even said to the person, look, I know that you're concerned that all we want is money. I'm not going to ask you for money until you give us permission to ask you for money. And I would say about six months in, we got like, you know, a $5,000 check from him. And so I call him up and I thank him profusely, um, but he's still not yet giving me permission to ask him for money. So, you know, we just keep cultivating and, you know, keeping in touch with him. And he had, he had an area of expertise that we could call him up and say, hey, we need your advice and you better believe every time I thought his advice would be valuable. I called him up. And and then one time I asked him to help us out on a project. And, you know, the checks would go up a little bit. We got a $10,000 check, $15,000 check. And then I asked him to help us out on a project. And it became clear just in terms of his technical expertise that we were going to have a shortfall on this project. And so, again, I still 
do not have permission to ask him for money. And he says to me, don't you think it's about time you asked me for money? Why don't you just ask me for the difference? And I'm like, okay, I don't have your permission yet, but now I do. So I asked him and he wrote us a check for like $375,000. But I totally get it because like his first reaction was like, I know what this is about. This is about money. And he hangs up. A lot of people will then press that button, you know, do not call, do not solicit, do not mail, just leave the person alone. They hate us. But I actually think it's possible to turn an angry donor or a disgruntled donor back to liking your organization again. It just doesn't happen overnight. I completely agree. And what's funny is it's not only, I think a lot of development directors see that gift and like, oh, it's only $5,000, but you have to multiply that out over like 30 years. What could that $5,000 have grown to? And, you know, for my own personal self, I was set to donate over a million dollars to this organization over the course of my lifetime if I kept my giving flat, like just the same. And that is a big loss for an organization, like a, a million dollars over my lifetime. You know, I pretended I was going to live till 85 or whatever, but that's a ton of money. It wasn't just my one year gift. You have to really think about it in terms of, of the future and the future giving capacity. And this donor that you solicited is, no offense, probably only getting wealthier because that's what happens to wealthy people. They just get wealthier forever. Um, and his giving capacity will only go up. Right. And and then the other thing that's lost, it's not just the cumulative gifts over the lifetime, but then it's also those planned gifts because it's the organizations yes. that we've given to for a decade or two decades or three decades that end up in our will. Correct. And, and I've always said, I mean, you know, we're generous in our household, not as not as generous as you are, but, you know, we're, we're generous in our household. But I've always said to all of my favorite charities, I'm much more generous when I'm dead than when I'm alive. <laughs> well, it's much easier. You don't need it for anything else. <laughs> So at this point now, you've moved on and you've found some other charities that are really giving you the insight and the acknowledgement and the personalization that you want. So what are some of the things that they're doing that will, over time, cause you to become a more loyal donor and maybe even a more generous donor? Well, I'll tell you the things they're doing now that I really appreciate. So the very honest and transparent conversations that we have, um, either with the development director or the executive director, these are much smaller organizations. So our access to the people at the top is much, the doors are opened much wider. Whereas at the other organization, $18,000 probably wouldn't get you a meeting with the executive director. Maybe if you were a $180,000 donor, maybe. So the fact that we get to have these conversations and ask a lot of questions is really building a bond because from the questions that we ask, the organization can then learn what our priorities are and what we're interested in. And they have learned that we are very open to solicitation, but we like solicitation in a very specific way. Like I like being solicited one time over the year. I don't want, you know, a spring ask, a fall ask, and an event ask. I want you to ask me one time. And I'm very open about that. And I think just the ability to be open and they are very excellent at listening and respecting our wishes. So as soon as we made that request, please ask us once, the next giving cycle, they made one ask. And it was it was a very well done ask. The second thing is the acknowledgments. We get these beautiful postcards once a month. And they're written by the executive director, which is unbelievable. And they're not long. They're a couple lines. They're postcards. They're made so she doesn't have to write, you know, 
volumes and volumes, but it's such a personal touch. And we also get like holiday cards. And even though they're, you know, just mass produced, there's always like a little note on there with I really, really like. With another organization that I'm involved in, they have, I sit on the board of this organization. The other one, I sit on a committee and I give, they have excellent communication and they are so open and so transparent. And they're just very honest about what they're doing, what the problems are, what they need help with. And they're open both with uh, all their donors, all the board members. And it's insight that I always craved as a donor because I really like to know what the money is being used for. The other thing is I appreciate communication and I appreciate communication that is not useless. I'm so sick of all these emails that come out that say nothing. I I like good communication. And both of these organizations communicate very clearly and very concisely. And they also are doing it in a way that I really like, especially for my generation. So if you're trying to connect with young donors, they do Facebook lives at least once a month. The executive director pops on, it's 10 to 20 minutes. You can ask questions if you want to. But for me, if I'm working at home or I'm taking care of my kids, I can watch it back later and I can ask, I could type in a question and then they can answer me back. But it's a really nice way to feel like you're interacting with somebody when you're actually just watching a video. So those are the things that I'm loving right now. And they're also not afraid to ask. I really love organizations that are not afraid of what philanthropy is. And I'm not offended when they ask me for more than I can give that year or more than I had planned to give that year. In fact, I'm honored. And I know they he- that everyone talks about this. But the fact that you think I have like $100,000 to give, I'm like, sweet. I drive a minivan. What gave you that idea? But amazing. Great. Thank you. You think I'm loaded? Awesome. I love the idea of it. And I find that incredibly flattering. Like you, whenever a charity asks me for something that's far above my capacity, I'm only flattered. I'm never insulted. This is like 25 years ago. The High Museum of Art in Atlanta asked me, and I was making like $20,000 a year at the time. I was like literally scraping together pennies to give them $500 a year. I was giving them, you know, what's that? Like you know, two and a half percent of my salary or something like that. And so it was, it's a pretty big gift for me at the time. And so they asked me for something that was so far outside of my capacity. Like it was the first time that a volunteer had ever called me up and said, I want to have coffee with you. And I knew what was going to come. It's like, I just got to see how much they're going to ask me for. I thought they were going to ask me for a thousand or something like that. And let's just say there were a couple too many zeros on the end of that number. And, and I really was like, I'm really flattered. I can't do it. But the funny thing is I came in, I ended up coming in with a gift much higher than what I otherwise would have because they did overshoot it by so much. But the other thing that you brought up that I just, I agree with you 100%, small nonprofits have the competitive advantage in the major gift game. I was working on a strategic plan with a performing arts organization last year, and they're relatively new. They're in their first five years. They're building their donor base. These are world-class performers. They left another performance company. And one of the things I said to them is they have such a competitive advantage because if we're going to use Atlanta as an example, if you give $5,000 a year at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, you are probably not going to have that many opportunities to have intimate conversations with the musicians that play in the orchestra. But you know what? The $5,000 donors of this organization are going to have intimate conversations with the performers. And there's going to be way more opportunities and you're going to have more donor loyalty. You're going to be seen as the value. I couldn't agree more. Most small organizations always think that they're too small to win the major donor game. 
And I completely disagree. I think the access and the insight and the transparency, because you don't have 50 or 75 staff and you don't need to go to the accounting department to get this giant report when you need to meet with a donor, you can be nimble and quick and responsive. And I very, very much agree. I want to add something that we, as an aside, I don't want to hijack this conversation, but before Dolph and I started recording, I just said, like, by the way, I'm happy talking about anything to do with money and fundraising and how much I give and whatever. And I wasn't always this way, but I will tell you that one of the things that got me to be so comfortable talking about money that I highly recommend to organizations, both big and small, is something that we do very often in the Jewish community. And I don't know if it's popular in the non-Jewish community, but it's called caucusing, possibly the worst word in the English language. But what it is, is we would do it as a board or a committee. We would sit together as a group and it would take two to sometimes three hours, we would dedicate an entire board meeting to it. Oftentimes, if it's a big board, you split in half and people really share of themselves, why they give, why they're passionate, why they're connected to this organization. And then very often at the caucuses I attend, we are very public with what we give. We say, this is the gift I made last year and this is the gift I'm going to make this year. And it's this much increase or percentage increase, whatever it's going to be. But listening to other people talk openly about philanthropy, how much they give and why they care and the decisions and the feelings that drive their giving is incredibly powerful. And it really normalizes the conversation around money. And if I had to give any organization one piece of advice, it would be try a caucus. If you want to do it with three people at a time or four people at a time, and this is not like spy time, like no one ever took down what I said and then used it again in a solicitation, like, oh, I remember what you said. But it connected us closer as a committee. It bonded us sometimes for life. It created friendships, but also it inspired us. Like if Dolph and I were caucusing and Dolph was like, oh, I give $20,000, I'd be like, wow, Dolph's giving $20,000, maybe I should give a little bit more. Or Dolph, that's so inspiring, I'm going to match your $20,000. There's just, when philanthropy is communal, there's so much power when it's in the open. So anyways, I just wanted to mention that because I used to be really scared to talk about how much money I gave. I love that concept of caucusing, and I agree. I actually think boards, committees, even like major donor giving circles for those that are comfortable to kind of sit down and have those conversations. And I think you're right. Part of what happens, though, is then we're also sitting around a table. You know, most of us already have a sense. We may not know to the penny what someone's net worth is, but most of us have a sense based on where they came from and what they do for a living and everything else, roughly what they're worth. And so you're also then going to have moments when you're like, wow, I've always felt like I've done better in life than this person, but they're giving really much more generously than I am. Should I think about my own giving and and what that priority is? Right. And often when one person shares their passion, it can't help but like stir up another people's passion. And to go back to all my little house in the prairie uh, (laughs) anecdotes, you know, when the like the traveling pastor comes to town and they have like a revival, revivals are basically just like other people exciting each other. And that's what a really good caucus could be. My passion and your passion equals triple the passion. I just think it's a really beautiful concept that sounds really scary and really awful and really intimidating until you try it. 
Absolutely. I will say, and I don't know if you know this or not, I started my fundraising career actually at Jewish Family Services in Atlanta, which later became Jewish Family and Career Services. And let me also say, you know, I know I know not all Jewish organizations are alike, and I know, you know, not all Jewish organizations cultivate donors the same way. Um, I almost said the name of, an or, of a different Jewish organization. So at Jewish Family Services and later Jewish Family Career Services, we just had such a high-touch approach to how we would handle giving. But I will also share with you that one of the things I loved about fundraising within the Jewish community is there really is a culture of philanthropy within the community, and people are raised to, to do this. And, and one of the things I also just want to sort of observe for folks that may not know— a lot of gifts within or to Jewish organizations often start with the number 18 because that that's a really powerful number. That's the number for life. So 1,800, 18,000, et cetera, or multiples of 18. And, and I also think it's, it's a good way for Jewish organizations to culturally connect with their donors. And I think all organizations need to find ways because, you know, we don't just give out of our out of our brain, we give out of our heart and our soul and our passion for all organizations to figure out how they're going to culturally connect with their donors. I agree 100%. I also found that to be very true. You know, I sit on the board of an organization that provides equine therapy, which is not what it sounds. Equine therapy is not therapy for horses. It's therapy for humans on horse back. Very confusing name. So if you have an adult or a child who needs speech therapy or physical therapy or has PTSD and needs just emotional support, you do it all through horses. Um, And we did what's called an emotional caucus where you don't talk about money. You just talk about what you love the organization. And I found out things about people that I didn't know, you know, that maybe somebody's uncle had had um, PTSD from a war and they tried equine therapy. This person was involved in the horse world and watched this. But it, there are bonds that are just shared by. So even if your organization is not Jewish or not religious or not a school, like there are things that bond people together through their love and their passion, whether it's horses or children with different abilities or social services or homelessness, people care deeply. And when you connect those passions, that's where the magic really happens, I think. You know, about 15 years ago, I was in a board retreat. I was not facilitating and I was not yet a consultant. It was being facilitated by uh, Mickey McIntyre out of Orlando. And he had all of us who were board members spend about 45 minutes to develop our own personal love story with the organization and then to share it with all the other board members. I love that exercise. I have used it with other boards since. Sorry, Mickey, it's true. I've used it with other boards. But I'm always kind of blown away when... Some board members will look at me and say, well, I don't have any kind of real love story with this organization. And my response is always, wow, you know, we need to figure out how we're going to create a love story for you. What experiences we need to give you so that you, when you talk about this organization, you're like, I love this organization. And also, by the way, Albert, because I think that's far nicer than being like, wow, so why did you join this board? If you don't love the organization. I I really love that idea. Like what experiences can we give you to make you fall in love with us? Uh, I love that spin. I really do. Well, I mean, like to me, it really is either that or you need to leave the board. Because, right. Why are you here? <laughs> right. Like, like, you know, if you're do- just doing this out of a sense of obligation or noblesse oblige or whatever, great. You know, so, you know, go have noblesse oblige somewhere else. We want passionate, committed people on this board. Agreed. Definitely agree. So, Abra, I am so incredibly grateful that we got to have this conversation about the way we as nonprofits should be treating donors, which is the way they want to be treated. But I also want to make sure that I ask you the off the map question. And 
you know, you've been on a few times, so I've gotten lots of great off-the-map questions from you or answers from you. But so here's the one I want to know now. I know that at any given point in time, you have five or six books on your nightstand. So you may not know exactly what's on the top, but in your head, what's kind of on the top of that stack? Ooh, what's on the top of the stack? Well, I'll tell you what I'm reaching for the most out of that stack, the one that I'm enjoying the most. I really love young adult sci-fi fantasy, which needs a rebrand. It's just the worst name for books about elves and wizards and magic. Otherwise, it just sounds like erotica. But it's not. It's like <laughs> the other end of the spectrum. I just hate people are like, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, fantasy. And I just feel like such a creep. But anyways, I like elves and magic and all that stuff. So there is this author, she's still alive, one of my favorite authors. Her name is Cynthia Voigt. And she wrote this series called The Kingdom. And I recently discovered there was one book that I had never read from the series, and it's called Elski, E-L-S-K-E. It's like a, who knows, some kind of made up name. And so that is what I'm reading. And I'm also in the process of reading the Red Rising series, which I would highly recommend. It's like the Hunger Games, but better in outer space. I love that. And admittedly, I did not know that you were such a fiction fan. I really did not know that. Major fiction. When I want to read I don't want to learn. I spend my day being a student of philanthropy. And when I read, I really want to go somewhere else. And it's either to Laura Ingalls, which I have, I've, we've just reread them all with my kids, or I really want to go to some magical land with magical, magical powers. Um, and I also listen to a ton of audiobooks. So it's either that or reading. Wow. I love that. And admittedly, I don't read a lot of fiction. I typically read one or two fiction books a year. So I'm going to check out both those books and see if one of them ends up on my fiction reading list this year. So thank you. You're welcome. And I'm so grateful that you joined us today. Listeners, I want to let you know, because you know, this is normally the point of the show that I say, oh my gosh, you got to check out this person's website. And you know, here's some of the other great work they're doing. And here's how you can connect with them. When Aubrey and I were speaking before the recording, I was sort of like, okay, Aubrey, here's the website that I want to share with listeners. Aubrey was like, hey, hey, wait, wait a minute, Dolph. That's not really why I'm on here today. I really want to share my donor journey and help listeners understand what donors are looking for and help listeners understand how to treat donors individually. So, you know, I, I don't even know if it's appropriate that you share the URL. And, um, oh my gosh, I got mad respect for you, Abra. I just, I have mad, mad respect for you. So listeners, here's what I'm going to say to you. I am doing this against Abra's wishes. And I know that going to get in some trouble for that, but I am doing this against Abra's wishes. Because if you want to be working with an auctioneer who cares so deeply and so much about philanthropy and the nonprofit sector that she's like, I just want to share this journey without it being promotional. If that's the kind of person you want to be working with, you need to find generosity auctions online. So I am going to respect her. I'm not going to tell you the URL. You can go to our homepage and you can get that. You can also just Google generosity auctions and it's going to come up. Also going to suggest that you check out her YouTube channel. It is incredible. It is blowing up. There are great videos, great advice. Absolutely suggest you check that out again. So, Aubrey, I apologize. I had to do some promo here because you really are that awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, and there's just mutual love through this screen for me to you. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, thank you. And listeners, if you have gotten distracted because you're like, oh, 
Dolph did not say the URL. Now I've got to go over to Google and try to find the URL myself. Then don't worry, just go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and you can find all the information you need to contact Abra. You can also get a transcript of today's episode and timestamped highlights. Right now, don't forget, we've been asking people to fill out the listener survey. We've turned four in July of this year. And, uh, and so in the last four years, we've not done any listener surveys. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm slow on the uptake and I was like, we need to find out what our listeners really want to know and what guests they want and what topics and why they download the podcast and why they don't. So please, just going to take you 10 going to take you three minutes to answer 10 questions. So please just jump on and do that. And also, while you're at our website, please take a minute, sign up for the newsletter. That, dear listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.